Hi there and welcome to another Osler episode. My name's Todd Fraser and in this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. On today's podcast I'll be chatting with Associate Professor Andrew Woody. Andrew is a staff specialist in intensive care at Melbourne's Alfred Hospital and recently was a co-author of a paper published in Critical Care and Resuscitation entitled Prevalence of Low Normal Body Temperatures and the Use of Active Warming in Emergency Department Patients Presenting with Severe Infection. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Todd. Really uh, great pleasure to be talking to you again. Um, what are the, the biological mechanisms behind a fever? How does it occur in clinical practice? Well, I mean, I guess most of your listeners will be fairly familiar with um, the sort of fundamental principles of fever. Um, the uh, and, and I suppose, first of all, it's really to say that it's a highly conserved response um, over a number of animal species, um, particularly in mammals, uh, in response to an infection, uh, hosts will then generate heat and thermogenesis um, through, and it's a highly... Um, metabolically costly process um, in terms of generating heat intrinsically through consumption of calories, increasing uh, your metabolic rate, um, shivering, um, uh, muscle contraction, etc., um, to generate uh, an increase in fever. Um, and this is obviously is through, often through a, a change in set point um, in, the, uh, in the central nervous system. So fever is uh, it's highly conserved, it's, it's very costly, and it's a, um, it's a response to infection, um, typically bacterial infection, but can obviously also be seen in viral infection, perhaps less commonly so with, I think, with invasive fungal infection. Um, you might say you don't quite see quite the same sort of response, but obviously the, um, the other thing is the, uh, the actual pathogen itself. Some pathogens are highly pyrogenic uh, as a consequence of the... Uh, uh, the makeup of their bacterial wall or the toxins that are released, um, they can generate a lot, you know, much more fever of these pyrogens that tend to, sometimes to be released as a consequence of the uh, of the infection. So fever is, uh, yeah, I, I would, what I would say is that it's, it's highly conserved. And so therefore there's been a lot of interest, I think, um, over a number of years now is what we should do with fever, how we should manage it. Um, and is it a a response from the host that is actually confers an advantage or is it a disadvantage? And I think that's still uh, possibly an unanswered question. So as you say, this is a very conserved, a highly conserved response. So theoretically, there must be some benefits to fever. What, what do we know about those potential benefits? Yeah, again, I mean, I think this is, this is a, an area that, that a lot of people will be familiar with again. Um, because it has been something that is highly conserved over over many many you know hundreds thousands of years of of uh, evolution, um, the suggestion is that yes, I mean there's got to be some sort of benefit to the host. And um, if you look at if you look at um, uh, different sort of host pathogen models, particularly animal models, you can see that they're at higher higher body temperatures. There's more uh, uh, sort of greater eradication of organisms. Um, antibiotics tend to work better, um, et cetera. So the, the idea, and, and of course, you know, you're, you're ramping up all of your enzymatic processes to a point that, uh, you know, that host defense and bacterial eradication is thought to be uh, improved. Um, and because it is a so conserved, I mean, that that's, uh, you know, it has a lot of biological plausibility from that point of view. 
So the idea is the idea. I think you know most people hypothesise is that it, is that it allows for the sort of host pathogen uh, interaction to favour the host and confer a, an advantage in terms of more rapid bacterial elimination and, and more efficacy of some antibiotics. Although that's a bit more questionable. Andrew, are there um, circumstances where a fever may actually be detrimental to the host? Well, I mean the, 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 that that's obviously seen in circumstances perhaps with a physiological reserve, but given the metabolic demands of fever, if the patient has limited physiological reserve um, or they have a lot of other comorbidity, then obviously the, the additional stress that is placed upon the patient's um, cardiovascular system, respiratory system, et cetera, may then generate further complications. So it is depend, depends significantly, I think, to some degree, on on the host, obviously on on their ability to to, to generate the fever, to generate heat, um, and secondly, of course, that there are some particular pathologies where we try and avoid fever, and you know the the most well known would be obviously uh, acute brain pathology. So there, there's you know reasonable reasonable epidemiological data to support the the uh, the um, uh, you know the premise. Uh, that brain injury may be worse if patients are allowed to become febrile. And, you know, the, you only have to look at the cardiac arrest studies, um, some of the head injury data and other uh, data in stroke uh, to suggest that there might be, you know, that there's a, a moderate signal there. And I think most clinicians would get uncomfortable with patients being particularly febrile in, uh, with that sort of pathology. Um, and obviously at very ex- high extremes of temperature for prolonged periods of time, you can obviously then see and because of again of that metabolic the metabolic cost, uh, you can see um, further sort of development of of uh, organ dysfunction, um, you know denaturing of protein proteins, et cetera. And uh, so when when clearly when fever is extreme or prolonged, uh, it can definitely be uh, um, detrimental and certainly with brain injury. This um, particular paper in question was looking at the prevalence of patients with low or normal body temperature when they presented to the emergency department and then in the first 24 hours afterwards. What do we know about patients who fail to mount a fever? Yeah, well, generally they do worse. I mean, look, I think, again, listeners will be very familiar with that. Patients who present hypothermic, grossly hypothermic as a consequence of infection, uh, typically have you know they have worse outcomes and and that's been been shown in a variety of different um, uh, settings beforehand. Um, I suppose really what we wanted to look at was uh, the prevalence of low normal temperature because um, some previous work from um, Paul Young and colleagues which looked at uh, uh, the influence of the peak body temperature uh, that was uh, recorded within the first twenty four hours in ICU. Uh, looking at septic versus non-septic patients clearly mm. clearly suggested that there was an association um, there between an improved survival and those that could mount a fever as opposed that um, that couldn't. Um, and so we wanted to know, well, how many patients actually presenting to the emergency department with community-acquired infection actually have a low normal temperature? So um, those that sort of between, less than 36, 4 degrees, um, as opposed to frank sort of hypothermia, um, and uh, and what happens to those patients? Do they then get a fever? Uh, do they do they do they warm up? How long does it take them to warm up? Um, do they ever mount a fever? And what do we do for those patients? Do those patients um, still get uh, paracetamol? Because paracetamol, of course, 
as well as being an antipyretic, of course, is an analgesic. So it could be potentially we could be giving those patients paracetamol for, for analgesia. And uh, and what about warming these patients? Do they ever get warmed up? We have a, I suppose, an, an inherent bias towards very high temperatures being um, potentially detrimental. And so I think surface cooling and other physical cooling measures are used, um, you know, not infrequently. Um, but what about actually the opposite? If someone's very cold um, or even just, you know, mildly hypothermic or have a low normal temperature, do we ever think about raising their temperature artificially? Um, and, uh, you know, and, and that's actually not a, uh, you know, not, not a completely crazy idea. I mean, there, there, there's some data, I think, from um, the early part of the 20th century where, uh, where patients' body temperatures were deliberately um, increased uh, for the treatment of certain um, sexually transmitted diseases, um, actually in the U.S., so as a way of trying to, um, uh, to uh, treat those infections. So, um, you know, this, this, that was sort of the premise, I guess, was to look at the prevalence, was to look at and, and really what, how those patients were then managed in the ED. So tell us a little bit about the uh, the paper that you you did. Yeah, so, so we, we looked at over a um, you know period of time, we looked at it in a single centre retrospective uh, observational cohort study. So there's all those limitations there immediately. We looked at patients that who presented to the emergency. Um, uh, well, actually, we, we looked at the, the the denominator was the number of patients presenting to the ICU with infection. Um, and then we looked at those that were in that came through the emergency department, uh, and we were basically looked at what was their presenting um, uh, to body temperature, uh, what their peak body temperature was uh, in the ED, what the nadir was, and and how they were managed. And I guess, you know, the the, the take home points were that of the uh, the 151 patients that were you know include the that uh, were included in the study because they met eligibility criteria, um, 40 of those patients. So 26.5% had a temperature greater than or equal to 38, and we'll define that as fever. Um, you know, it's a bit arbitrary how you define that, but that's how we defined it. Um, and 34 patients had a low low normal body temperature, uh, so that they were um, less than or equal to 36.4. Um, and some of those patients were quite cold. Uh, three of them were less than 35, and six were between 35 to 35.9. And if you presented with a low temperature, then the median time to get to normothermia was actually almost eight hours. Um, so you did take a, a, quite a while to, to sort of for the body temperature to improve, and active warming was only applied to one patient. So it just provides a little bit of epidemiological data around this to say, well, actually, patients, a lot of patients actually presenting to the ED with severe infection have, in fact, actually a low normal body temperature. They're not febrile at all, almost a quarter. The same proportion, you know, similar proportion to those that actually were febrile, um, and uh, and and we weren't didn't have enough power really to look at um, at clinical outcomes. And overall, actually, the the uh, in hospital mortality rate was actually quite low. It was only um, around about nine percent. So, and and that's because we took all comers um, with all types of infections uh, presenting to the ED rather than looking at a, a sicker cohort. Um, but but certainly there was, uh, yeah, the patients that were presented with a low body temperature tended to take a long time to warm up. Few of those patients actually mounted a fever and we didn't, you know, essentially there was only one patient that was actively warmed because they were very, very cold. Um, and I think that that's, you know, really useful sort of data to think about, well, 
if we were going to go, you know, if we're going to go on to study this and and look at it more, you know, more systematically, this this sort of information is really key uh, as as a starting point. So, Andrew, at the moment, there's I guess a hypothesis that warming these patients may be of some benefit. There's some theoretical benefits to generating a fever. There's certainly some evidence that there is a cohort of patients who present hypotensive and that they could do worse. What do we need to do now to get to a point where a formal study is required, do you think? Well, yeah, look, I mean, I think we, need, we would need a lot, um, a lot sort of wider net, if you like. So I think, I think that this question, first of all, would we need to proceed to get some multi-centre data because this was, and this was retrospective. Um, so single centre, there are a lot of limitations uh, with this sort of design, um, and and so I think that, that we would need a much more pragmatic, prospective, multi-centre observational study. First of all, to identify, you know, look at look at critical things like, well, how often do these patients present? Um, what is the um, uh, you know, in terms of the feasibility of enrolling patients, um, if we were to actually think about warming patients, how would we do that? Um, is it feasible just to use surface cooling? What's the surface heating warming, I should say? What's the, the rate of, of rise of temperature? Do we need to think about things with its more things that are more invasive? Um, we'd also want to spend quite a bit of time looking into the data to identify a group um, that have high mortality. So there's probably going to be... Um, you know, other additional physiological parameters, whether it be blood pressure, lactate, et cetera, that would need to be considered. Um, so I think you would need a lot more data around this to really inform the eligibility criteria, the intervention, how long you would how long you would do it for, how fast you would warm. Um, would also probably like to link it, I think, to a, a biomarker of some description and looking at may, maybe the intervention could be associated with the, with, with favourable changes and in sort of inflammatory markers or something like that, you know, we'd, we'd need a lot more thought, I think, and a lot more consideration before it was ever to make the prime time in terms of a, a randomised controlled trial. How do you think it will all play out, given that there's an interest in the critical care research um, sort of environment at the moment about uh, cooling patients and, and trying to work in those sorts of areas? How do you think it all will interact with uh, now a potential hypothesis that we should be warming patients? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is interesting. So there's been there's been some fantastic work, obviously done over the last uh, number of years, looking at this question, the heat um, trial and um, reactor, which is obviously ongoing, um, both out of New Zealand. Uh, and the question, I suppose, you know, those studies are really looking about well, how should we manage patients who manifest a fever? So you know, both the heat uh, took patients that were had a, had a fever greater than or equal to 38 degrees within 12 hours of enrolment who were receiving paracetamol and randomised them to paracetamol or, or placebo. Um, Reactor similarly is looking at patients who have a fever, uh, I think defined by a slightly lower lower body temperature greater than or equal to 37.8, um, and then randomising them to sort of an active or intensive temperature control protocol versus usual care. Um, so that's looking at really managing fever and the metabolic costs of fever um, and and whether or not there's benefit there or whether in fact, in fact actually that's harmful. Um, and, uh, you know, as opposed to this question, which is, the, I suppose, the other side of the other side of the coin, which is, well, if you if you've got suspected infection, but you're cold, 
um, or not even really, you know, and not frankly hypothermic, but actually just low normothermic, is there value in trying to raise that patient's body temperature? And so I think they're different questions, and I think that they, they're, they're the different, uh, you know, they're different populations of patients in many ways. Um, and so I think I think this particular question could can certainly be considered and developed in parallel uh, with the other work that's ongoing. It's a bit like dermatology, isn't it? If they cool, warm them. If they're warm, cool them. And when in doubt, give steroids. Yeah, something along, along those lines. Yeah, look, I mean. I think I think you know a lot of clinicians will probably you know say well you know maybe we shouldn't be dabbling too much and we should um, you know not being either too aggressive, um, but I mean I I think the um, I think there there is a lot of I mean I I think we're, when we're talking about warming patients we're not taking taking talking about taking patients that are necessarily normothermic. And raising the temperature into a sort of febrile range. I think we're taking looking at patients that have, have are either frankly hypothermic or or low normothermia and bringing bringing their temperature up, um, but not too aggressively, um, because I, I think that would there'd almost certainly be a lot of resistance from clinicians too. I think, um, but just trying to uh, trying to aim just trying to keep everything looking normal. That's probably another adage of ICU. Try and make all the numbers look normal. Um, you know, there may be some there may be some benefit there, but I I think the, the question's out. Um, you know, the the answer's still still out there. We, I I think we're really still not certain about what the optimal uh, strategy is for managing temperature in the ICU. Probably in in actually in most categories of patients, even in brain injury, uh, I think it's still very uncertain um, what you should do. Um, particularly later on in the, the patient's ICU course. You know, if you're a, a week or 10 days down the line from a patient's, patient's brain injury, you're trying to wake them up, you're trying to uh, get them breathing spontaneously, move them forward, and they're having fevers, are you really going to deeply sedate and paralyze that patient to control their, um, their febrile response? It's totally unknown, totally uncertain. Um, you know, subarachnoid hemorrhage, stroke, similar sort of conditions where, again, a fever in that context what is the right thing to do? Um, I don't think anybody knows. Still an awful lot to find out. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us once again on the podcast. Fascinating discussion, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing how it all unfolds over the next few years. Yeah, thanks very much, Todd. I appreciate you uh, giving me the time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this one, visit our website at osla.force.com.